You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for being here. Um, it's a great pleasure to be your chair for this core business and panel on what we do for a living, which is advocacy and for the humanities. Welcome to the four panelists, particular welcome to Daniel Carey, who came in on zero notice to replace some Anne Fuchs. Very heroic and very generous of you. Uh, we have uh, quite a bit of time, over an hour, an hour and a bit, uh, to make the point on now multiple strategies for advocacy of the humanities. The CHTI has a very clear line on this, I think historically, if I may summarize, and that is that you are much stronger if you play attack rather than defense. And, and the last thing that we need to do is to spend a life apologizing for our existence, although very often the political context puts us in a position uh, where we need to apologize and justify our existence. Be proactive, affirmative, um, hands-on has always been our response uh, to all of that and I'm sure that the panel will reflect both the high levels of energy of affirmation of that particular uh, strategy. Uh, I don't think CHCI would support anything that is in the culture of grievances or the rhetoric of the lament. <laughs> the humanities are too strong and too vital for it. Welcome to the panelists in that mode. We are asking you to say some briefly uh, where you're from, something about yourselves, and an opening statement between five and eight minutes to launch the discussion, and then very much looking forward to a televisual type of interaction. And I have the light shining in my eyes, so I can't see half of you, but uh, we will do our best to make sure that the dialogue um, progresses. I will go in the order in which you are listed, and James Shulman, you are the first. I began uh, serving as the Vice President of the American Council of Learning Societies less than one year ago. So I'm, I'm rapidly approaching the time where I have no excuse about uh, why I can't answer every question you have about everything we do. Uh, I have a few more days, so I may not get everything right. I thought I'd start by just saying a few things about ACLS. Um, it's, it's an organization which is uh, lives in a sort of an unusual in-between state uh, of being. And I, I thought rather than uh, jumping right into how we advocate or what ways we advocate for what part of uh, humanity scholarship, I thought I'd explain a little bit about what we do, and that way when we have dialogue, uh, various aspects might be of interest to you. So uh, ACLS is 100 years old this year, uh, formed in 1919 by uh, five American uh, academic or learned societies. Uh, as a um, interlocutor to uh, to uh, interact with European uh, agencies on behalf of the humanities in the states, um, and over our hundred years, we've uh, there's been ebb and flow of uh, our participation in various activities. But the way I would describe things today is that we uh, are sort of. Uh, a loose federation of the 75 uh, academic societies that are members of ACLS, the, the Council of the American Council of Learned Societies, and these uh, these are uh, many are discipline based, others are uh, uh, based on time periods or, or uh, geographical areas of interest. 
Uh, but we work with them, with the executive directors and with their boards to think about the questions of membership and, um, and the very pragmatic questions, but also the questions of the roles that societies can play in questions of uh, 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 credit and what counts towards credit and adjuncts and bigger policy issues. So, so we work with the 75 societies on one hand. Uh, we also have uh, about 17 fellowship programs that we uh, that we execute. So we, the, you may have, uh, you know, when you think of ACLS fellows, you may think of our central fellowships, which are awarded. We right now are awarding 81 of those in uh, in all disciplines in uh, humanistic, the pursuit of humanistic uh, knowledge. Um, and uh, there are 81 of them these days uh, between assistant associate and full professors, all peer reviewed. Um, and we'll come back to the question of peer review and our role in that. And then 14 or 15 other programs uh, that range from every stage of uh, scholarly careers. Uh, and some of these, we have a new program where we're supporting research uh, support for scholars uh, who primarily work in community colleges. We have uh, programs for uh, senior scholars who are now uh, a new program. Uh, for senior scholars who are spending a year embedded in, a, in an NGO or a nonprofit outside the academy and both bringing their academic uh, tools to bear on, uh, on uh, sort of grand challenge questions, but also bringing back into the academy and into their PhD uh, teaching programs, uh, hopefully elements of cultural change about where, how the inter uh, humanities interact uh, with, with the world. And then uh, we also interact with a group of 40 PhD grant, uh, granting universities who are members of a consortium where deans of humanities come and meet with us every year. And so I think what's interesting about ACLS at this point is being sort of at the intersection of these different flows of information with the, with the scholarly societies, with our own fellowship programs, and then with the universities. So that when we, we think of questions like uh, career diversity for PhD students in the humanities, and what, uh, what we're collectively learning on those issues, or when we look at questions like uh, research analytics and uh, how different universities are using systems and tools to engage research and the degree to which they are or are not tuned into uh, issues in the humanities, uh, since they were uh, obviously driven by, uh, by needs in the sciences. You know, then, then when we're participating in these discussions, we're in the middle of the different uh, perspectives. You know, a scholar can obviously be a, um, at any stage of his or her career, uh, a member of a society or two or three, apply for a fellowship, serve as a reviewer or a referee on our, our peer review fellowship programs, and obviously may uh, live or work in, uh, in an institution of higher education. And in these different roles, they have very different perspectives on these questions. So I think what we can, uh, at our best, what we can do is uh, execute our programs well and serve these different parts of the ecosystem well, but also sort of have a perspective that can uh, do some aggregation and, uh, uh, as an intermediary in these different flows of information. Extremely disciplined. Very disciplined with the time, and thank you so much. Of course, for the Europeans, uh, just a reminder, banal, but it's important. You know, states don't have anything that looks like our national research ministry. 
of the National Education Ministry. There's a very different way of federating the different organizations, and we are always looking with envy and admiration at the multitude of options that our American colleagues are, while we are stuck with our government agency, who make usually disastrous decisions about the United States, with all due respect. Um, a great pleasure to welcome Jennifer Edmund from Trinity College, Dublin. You have Sure. Thanks, Rosie, and thanks everyone for, uh, for, for inviting me to speak to you on this. I'm actually going to speak for about two different perspectives of advocacy for the arts and humanities research and what that means to me, because I have two very distinct roles. Um, in the first instance, I'm the president of the board of directors of an organization called DARIA EU. DARIA is a pan-European research infrastructure for the arts and humanities. We have now 18 member countries, and when I say member, it is a member country. It is the ministry or the funding agency that uh, signs on to us formally, and then the researchers below that form a consortium. So in that group, we have roughly a thousand contributors, some of which are paid, most of which are not, and we have 11 more countries which are actually working to join with us. So it's quite a significant organization. But it is a research infrastructure. So really, infrastructure, if it works, disappears. You know, like electricity, you don't wake up in the morning and think, oh, thank God we have electricity today. Um, so how can we help uh, with that, that mission, uh, as, as Rosie puts it, of, of having that, you know, being stronger by, by going out in front and being confident and saying, no, we're not just, the arts and humanities aren't just the pretty stuff. They aren't the stuff of the cherry on the top of the cake. They're the essential. They're the eggs in the cake, not the cherry on the top. Um, and one of the things that we found we can do very uniquely within DARIA is that we can be a policy voice at the European level. Okay, so we're a European organization, this may have equivalents in other countries. Um, but for example, there's a lot of European policy right now about open science. And a lot of that policy around open access to research publications, but also open access to research data, and also things like citizen science. The understanding underlying a lot of this policy is driven by the experiences of the experimental and the natural sciences. They're driven by the STEM subjects. And I sit on an organization called the Open Science Policy Platform. It is a European organization where they bring people from different stakeholders together. And I'll tell you, you want to know how many humanists there are on the Open Science Policy Platform? There's 25 of us. Anybody want to guess? One. There's one humanist in the room, and you know what? I sit there and I say the same things over and over, and I don't know if that's the good news or the bad news. But what happens over time is people have started to recognize that Doria, and by extension the arts and humanities, have an interest in where this policy goes. We have things to say. We see important things about the wider knowledge ecosystem that others don't. And this, to me, is the kind of advocacy that, while it's not it's not particularly interesting to most people, but the knock-on effects for our researchers are going to be huge because otherwise, you know, if the funding agencies decide to require the deposit of data, well, we can't always do that because we share it with cultural heritage institutions and the publishers. So for Daria, that advocacy is, is, is something that we do in that um, narrow space where we can be strategic and we can have a very high impact. Um, but if I change hats, um, I'm also an associate professor of digital humanities here at Trinity College Dublin. And for me, as a, a public servant, which is what I am, um, but someone who's actually working in an area where it's very clear to me that in the wider society, there are real gaps between the social and the technological. And just because my work coming from a literary background may not necessarily have led me directly there, doesn't mean that I can, I can disavow myself of, of that responsibility. 
So we took on a research project where we actually said, okay, we have to start at the start. We have to understand how the humanities and the arts create knowledge. We have to express that very clearly. And that's something I think actually we are less good at than other, other sort of larger disciplinary communities. The whole idea of writing your methodology section is something that, you know, in, in, in when I publish in the social sciences, I'm always told, well, strengthen the methodology section, call it that, methodology. Um, and I realized that a lot of the science technology studies literature didn't actually cover the arts humanities the way I wanted to see it covered. So we went back to being and we said, okay, well, how can we take an arts humanities methodological approach to big data? And what was interesting about that project is that we received, we, we, we could not actually fulfill the desire for all the advocacy we were asked to do. All the, the public outreach, all of the opportunities to actually present arts and humanities knowledge as relevant to contemporary society. So that was really instructive for me in that. And this is also something which I would say, because this is an audience of, of humanities research institutes and centers, that I individually and personally have received a lot of support for from my local institute here in that lovely building just out there. Um, because the whole idea that there are these sort of translational skills about um, how to make your research more interdisciplinary, how to make your research connect with different kinds of audiences, how to see your research in different ways. So that's really helped me in that to, to, to gain the kind of confidence and the kind of perspective that I think helped me personally be a better advocate, but also helped me to build my research team around that and also build the, uh, the Daria approach around that. So I'll, I'll stay there for now. I'm happy to answer questions afterwards. Spoken in top Irish speech. <laughs> Sorry for that. Processed in energy. Is this advocacy or is it just so much energy emerging from data humanities, computational humanities, digital humanities, that in fact it's just an explosion of growth? No need to advocate, you're being advocated almost. Thank you for that, Jennifer. Welcome, Daniel Carey from the Irish Humanities Alliance, University of Galway. You have your eight golden minutes. Oh, my goodness. Okay. I'll try to talk fast. Um, yeah, I'm director of the Moore Institute at NUI Galway. Um, I serve on the Irish Research Council, and I was chair of the Irish Humanities Alliance, a group of 11 institutions coming together north and south, which I think has had a reasonable success in trying to get a higher profile for the humanities, to engage with government, to engage with European funding calls, to do what we can. But I think the position we find ourselves in is trying to defend what sometimes uh, the impression is it's the indefensible. And a number of strategies have been tried, obviously, the notion of intrinsic importance. I think increasingly that rather rings hollow and seems like a form of special pleading that uh, is set aside. So what is the alternative? Well, to emphasize social value, utility in different forms, the kind of impact agenda that's very well established, for example, in the UK. And they, these are ways of justifying our existence uh, according to different sets of criteria. But they're, not, they're obviously notoriously difficult. They require funding. They require cultivation and resources. Um, and that hasn't been developed everywhere in Europe, certainly uh, probably outside of the UK, not very much. The other strategy is to ally with topics that are of public concern that have a scientific dimension, for example, like climate change or medical humanities, even I would say digital humanities in certain respects as that kind of scientific edge that people feel confers legitimacy. Um, that's another strategy. The other, of course, dimension is to emphasize that we, we, we don't engage in job creation in precisely the same ways, and so our advantages are not immediate in that, in that context. However, one of the difficulties we face is a lack of evidence. In Ireland, it's notoriously difficult to come up with evidence about career trajectory for graduates of arts subjects. And we need a much better uh, uh, 
evidence-based from that point of view. The British Academy did an interesting report on this. Um, their evidence document is a little bit thinner than one would like, uh, but at least it's an attempt. And that too requires funding and collective action and, and, and resources. But some of the things we could also do are to, to seek public advocates for that. And I think sometimes we miss opportunities with people in prominent positions and also people who have just done interesting things with their careers and having started out um, in, engaged in problem solving and learning skills that are intrinsic to arts disciplines. And just a few sort of people we could mention, Christine Lagarde, for example, her background in English, uh, Beto O'Rourke, we'll see what his fortunes are, nonetheless background in English. Uh, Tim Geithner was the Secretary of the Treasury in the U.S. These are people who have a philosophy background in his own case. So sometimes th those are obscure, and you'll often see that their backgrounds, their educational backgrounds, are obscured on Wikipedia, for example. And that, I think, is telling its own story. People bury their relationship to the humanities in their statements about themselves when they are legitimated in some other medium. Um, we have difficulties in, in the face of public understanding or reception of, of, of science. Science is a thing that you do. It has a livery. You put on a lab coat and you do it. We lack a livery in the humanities. I don't know if anybody has any suggestions for one, but I think that's something we might dwell on. And it's also very abstract. You can't approach the public and say, you know, I'm doing humanities. What does that involve? Thinking? Being in the world? Something like that. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's a challenge we face. On the other hand, there are obvious issues of public concern. Fake news, historical accuracy, of technology, of artificial intelligence. Sometimes we approach it by emphasizing the critical function of the humanities. I think we might be better off by describing it as being critically engaged. I think to have a critical function merely sounds like negativity. Um, and that is, creates its own kind of difficulties. But to be critically engaged is to be part of the world. And I think ultimately to try to describe what, what, what is it that people do by living in the world. They live through imagination, through narrative, through questions of identity that are constant. Um, through fantasy and other things that these are all the things that are part of being being human that I think we need to recapture and, and re revalorize to understand it's not merely a kind of means and relationship to living in the world. Um, in a European context, there are obviously particular struggles associated with the rise of Europe and the redefinition of its program around missions. The missions that humanities are engaged in are not ones typically that lend themselves to solutions. For example, social justice, there's a mission, but we don't solve it as such. So I think we need to try as much as we can to reframe some of these debates and to seek a space in which our contribution becomes more, more obvious and more conspicuous. So, there. Thank you for putting on the list a series of hot topics from the methods uh, to the often negative public image of the humanities, undeserved, uh, to the question of what would be public engagement, I'm looking at the public humanities, and how phenomenal to hear a member of the National Research Council putting social justice and top of the agenda. We want that in writing, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Last opening statement by Andrew Thompson of the Arts and Humanities Research Council. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I'm here, I think, as the Executive Chair of the Arts and Humanities Research Council, but I also have the responsibility for the International Strategy for UK Research and Innovation, which brings all of the UK 
research councils together and in that capacity that means that for the last year I've been responsible for all of that EU exit planning and you can imagine how much joy that's brought into my life. Um, I wasn't quite sure in five minutes what, what one could say and uh, three and a half years ago I came into the job at the AHRC in the middle of the nurse review, support nurse review, which created UK research and innovation and in the middle of a government spending review as well. And I was given, um, kindly given, two pieces of advice uh, by my predecessor, who happens to be in the room, Rick Rylands, and by the chair of my council, who uh, isn't in the room, Sir John Bone. And, and the advice was as such from, from Rick, uh, it was eloquent as it always was, uh, which was, Andrew, please don't mess it up. Um, he actually didn't use the word mess, but I understand we're being recorded. Um, and from Drummond, it was, Andrew, um, you can't go into Westminster and Whitehall and blow your own trumpet, but you have to make it clear that you have got a trumpet to blow. <laughs> so this is about the trumpet. And I give you four observations about the trumpet, and uh, in closing, very quickly, uh, a word of caution and word, uh, warning. So, the, uh, to strain a metaphor even further, uh, the first thing I want to talk about is tone. And the chair of the panel opened up on that subject. Uh, we do have a propensity in the humanities to default into a defensive, apologetic, and sometimes even self-entitled defense of ourselves. That goes down extremely badly with politicians and civil servants. And however eloquent what you're about to say afterwards is, it will not be listened to if you strike that tone. So to be more positive and to be more upbeat and more self-affirming is very important. But I go further than that. It, it strikes me, I'm a historian by trade, if you look back historically, there is a good case to say that we are living through one of the most fertile and innovative and exciting moments in our disciplines. But sometimes we don't have the self-confidence to say that. The stimulus that is being provided by the digital revolution, by global challenges, by societal challenges, by working across disciplines in newly productive ways, I think means that the humanities are going through a period of fertility that maybe we haven't experienced since the 1970s. Um, so tone is really important. Second observation. The quintessential can actually be consequential. We tend to back off that sort of argument, but I think it's true. Let me give you an example. One of the very impactful, and I use that word advisedly, pieces of research that we funded in recent years, created, uh, not last summer, but the summer before last, the Hokusai exhibition at the British Museum which probably was the big, biggest exhibition that was staged in uh, big cultural institutions that year. That was two and a half years, two and a half years, out of an Arts and Humanities Research Council, responsive mode, open call, blue skies grant. I simply don't believe that the more targeted, the more strategic, the more directive you become about research, the more impactful it is. That is an evidence-free zone. I've never seen any evidence to justify that. The quintessential can be consequential, but then there is an obligation on us or a responsibility to furnish civil servants and politicians with examples of that being such. And I believe those examples are there. Thirdly, 
We, and I again use this word advisedly, we own a very important part of the economy. We should not back off and we should not be uh, um, diffident uh, or unsure about asserting that argument. And I say that in two senses. One has long been true. Uh, humanities research has long fed and fertilized our major cultural institutions, our galleries, our libraries, our archives, and our museums. Probably, and it's just over a decade of its history, the strongest story the Arts and Humanities Research Council has to tell about what it's done is the way we've transformed the way humanities work, uh, researchers work in those institutions. At least six of the British Museum's biggest and most blockbusting exhibitions, and I'm just using that as one example of the cultural institution, over the last 10 years came out of AHRC-funded research. But it is also going to be increasingly true of our cultural and creative industries in all their different guises, all the way from gaming, film and television to fashion and beyond. This is going to be an increasingly important part of the economy of the future. And that will be as true in Ireland as it is in the UK. And it's the creative and performing arts as much as, uh, and design, as much as computing and coding, working together, which will be the parts of the research base that shore up the future of our creative industries. So to, when we hear arguments that our disciplines are not of economic benefit or value, we simply should not accept them. We should challenge them with the evidence that's there. And then the last observation is that I think, as a fellow panelist just said, we have things to say. We have important things to say, we have necessary things to say, and we have timely things to say. Let me give you two examples. If we think about global challenges, tackling world poverty and international development, a lot of you will probably have heard Ebola used as a shorthand yeah, for arguing for the case of the humanities. What's often said in the context of Ebola is the, the failure to understand West African burial practices uh, and the way in which those burial practices were a powerful vector for spreading disease. And that's true, and that was about intercultural and religious understanding. But actually, uh, there were two other lessons from Ebola, not so readily drawn, both of which are relevant to the humanities. Is Ebola was also a failure of community engagement. When communities didn't want to send uh, members to hospitals or resisted vaccination programs, um, the uh, biomedical community uh, working in that crisis was not listening carefully enough to the community as to why those uh, 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 responses were as they were. And Ebola was also a failure of power dynamics in international aid and development organisations uh, where messages on the ground in West Africa were not going back to New York or London or Geneva quick enough. So there are global challenges, but there are also societal challenges as well. Just to mention a few, if you think of modern slavery, or you think of mental health, or you think of the rising rise of populism, or growing inequality, or AI and ethics, how on earth do you think seriously and constructively about these things without the humanities? Let me just take the ethics of new technology. Think about the internet majors. How are we regulating the internet majors? What are we regulating them as? We're certainly not regulating them as broadcasters at the moment, but that's partly what they are. What about data and the economic value that comes from data? What rights do individuals have to that? How do people feel they can lead purposeful lives in an age of intensifying digitization 
where robots, machine learning and AI might become more part of our day-to-day -day world. What happens when new technologies push the boundaries of what it means to be human? What are we going to do about the hidden power of algorithms? The fact that for a younger generation at least, uh, we have a curious inversion. I think for many people in this room, their um, uh, offline lives define their online lives. For my 18-year-old daughter, it is the inverse. Increasingly, her offline life is defining her, sorry, her online life is defining her offline life. Technology means we're going to interact with each other in new and different and unpredictable ways. How do you begin to think all of that through without thinking about ethics and the ethical thinking that comes out of the humanities? If there is one note of caution and one risk here, so I'm very confident and I'm very upbeat about arguing for our future. It's not about defending, it is about advocating. But I think that in the humanities, as across actually the length and breadth of the research base, there is a risk of structurally overcharging ourselves at the moment. So the good face of an impact narrative recognises when there is serious and significant amounts of taxpayers' money going into research and innovation, there is a quite legitimate public and political expectation to want to ask what the value of that is and what it produces. But there is also a risk of over-promising and under-delivering. And I think we have to be very careful as a humanities community, just as the STEM or scientific community do, to claim for our things, things that are actually reasonable and realistic, and not to overclaim in the hope of coming up with an impact narrative that we think but actually never will satisfy a certain sort of political mindset. Thank you very much. Note. I would like to ask the panelists first, give you the opportunity to cross-refer, reach across, transversally comment uh, on each other in any given order, and it will also give our beloved audience the time to reassemble your thoughts and start um, preparing your lines of attack defense. Who would like to go first? I see many commonalities and counterpoints. Yeah, just to pick up on some points that, that Andrew was making there, I, I, I do think we should be much more self-confident. I think there are difficulties in, in, in certain pockets uh, in government where one can feel that there's a certain deaf ear. And sometimes I find, at least in an Irish context, that you're trying to describe a country to people who are living in it and they don't realize what they're living in and what the true strength of the country is. That can be disorienting, but I don't think the response to that is to be either defensive or unduly negative. It's really to emphasize that and, to, and I think to remind people of their own experience and their own relationship to, to the humanities. And just to pick up on one other small thing is just, um, you, know, you were talking about, you know, you know online lives and, and so forth and that transformative moment. But yeah, I mean, social media is, our, 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 the emphasis is typically on the kind of algorithms behind it, but it's, it's really forms of sociality that are being enacted in new and rather startling and significant ways. That that's, brings us into the space that, in which we have expertise. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd love to pick up, um, Andrew, you, you've given us all the, the great sound bites, and I, I'm very grateful for this, because I love this idea that the quintessential can be consequential. Um, and this is one of the things I see again and again when I look at again, this nexus between technology and, and human beings. I mean, let's, and, but in particular, human beings in their cultural sets, not in their individual kind of consumer roles, 
but in their roles as interconnected individuals within societies and cultures. Um, and particularly the aspect of one, one example that I find very interesting is the way in which language and, and culture that's associated with it almost again becomes one of these sort of infrastructural aspects of our lives. You know, it's like electricity. If we didn't have it, you know, we would notice it. But the fact that we do have it, that we use it, that it is so important to um, how we think, how we interact, how we structure ourselves. And yet, um, uh, a few years ago, there was a post uh, by uh, Mark Zuckerberg about the, uh, language, the, the translation technologies that they were developing within Facebook that said, you know, it is essentially, I'm paraphrasing here, essentially that it's such a shame that language is such a barrier to communication. And isn't it great? Isn't it great we live in an age when we'll have the Facebook technologies to allow us to come together? Now, anyone who's seen and tried to work through any machine translation knows that it is not intimacy. It's a rough idea of what might be going on. And, and of course, those who work in literary translation know how hard it is to render those nuances and sort of steamroller over them. And again, this is a lot about trying to kind of recapture that space. There is so much pushing the, the cultures of the technology, but also a lot of the other big institutions that shape our lives. It's like, you know, we need simplicity. We need simplicity. We need innovation. Well, actually, that's all well and good, but let's remember what is, you know, quintessential and what is consequential there. And I think that, again, that's a role that we absolutely can play. Again, social justice, we don't solve it, but we can, we, we kind of need it. Um, you know, democracy, peace, all these things that seem under threat these days, uh, I think it's important for us to, to grasp that and say, look, it, it is through us that we can come to a more nuanced understanding of, of what this means to us. Thank you. James? I was struck by the question of public impact and public uh, expectations and, and sort of the uh, pragmatic approach of, of how we get there. And, and while you're right that in the States we don't you know, the, the funding sources are very diverse and the, there's a lot of institutional funding and private philanthropy. Um, I, I was lately encouraged by, uh, by the role of the National Humanities <coughs> Alliance, uh, which does do advocacy in Washington, D.C. on behalf of the humanities. Uh, some of us, probably people in this room, were there in March uh, to go uh, advocate for the humanities at, on Capitol Hill. Uh, I, was, uh, I was assigned to the Idaho delegation uh, uh, without a lot of experience directly about Idaho, um, some knowledge of uh, the humanities, and trained up though to uh, what, what NHA does is uh, advocate with, uh, with uh, Congress on uh, for the National Endowment for the Humanities, for the Institute for Museum and Library Services, Title VI, funding for foreign languages, the National Archives, programs like this. So, um, and what was heartening about it was uh, a very politically conservative delegation in Idaho was extremely supportive of the NEH. I mean, there was no, and as you know, we all went through when, when, when we went through this ritual of, of cutting you know, proposed to cut the NEH and the NEA down to nothing, and then actually the NEH funding has actually gone up. Um, and, it, and NEH over the last few decades has been very sophisticated at putting money to work in people's districts. And so trained up with, with uh, well-armed with uh, what money went to the Idaho State Museum, and even, I thought most interestingly, uh, of NEH funding for uh, an indigenous uh, people's uh, language preservation program based in Idaho. And I think that this is a, a set of politicians 
for whom uh, care for indigenous people uh, in the abstract or at a high level is not really uh, at the top of their agenda. But when it comes to putting that money to work in their district on behalf of people who are or are not going to vote for them, uh, they were very supportive of it. So I think in terms of strategies, you know, local, local is vivid. Andrew, would you like to, to have a right of reply because being the last speaker, you sort of um, were sort of skipped over. Would you like to comment on anything? Um, probably just um, to come back to Jennifer's point that language and culture matter, but it's upon our shoulders to explain why they matter. And you know, Brexit has is a cloud with very few silver linings, but. Um, I think one thing that Brexit has exposed very painfully is a whole series of culture wars. You know, it's, it's a campaign that's been fought as much or much more on values as it has on economic grounds. And it's exposed intergenerational divides, class or social divides, geographical divides, racial and ethnic divides as well. And I think in that context, I, I do get a sense in our political system that um, ears are more open, at least in some quarters, to the fact that language and culture do matter at a time when our politics is under intense scrutiny. And I think many politicians are wrestling with the uncomfortable question of not just what people think, but why do they think what they think? And it's very difficult to get to an answer to that question without taking language and culture seriously. Thank you. Is the panel happy for now? Anybody is on the verge of explosion if you don't say something? Can we? <laughs> we will come back to you time and time again. Looking out in hope and uh, great expectation to the audience, I think we will cluster two or three questions at a time. I think we need microphones. I'm looking at the logistics. Uh, would you be so kind as to briefly introduce yourself so that we know who we're speaking to? Let's start in the middle in a particular order. Could you keep your hands up so I can see? Okay, we'll start at the back. Simon, I think, yeah. Uh, it's a question for the, Andrew in particular. I totally agree with uh, the way in which taking the argument to the other side is absolutely crucial and must be upbeat and aggressive. But one of the ways in which you're giving in to the other side in one sense is to make all the arguments about instrumentality. And I wondered what your defense would be for pure research. It's, it's an argument not just for humanities, of course, but also for mathematics and other subjects. But the argument for pure research is one that seems to be lost in the case. Okay, we've got in the middle here and then over here. We only have one mic. So, um, in the middle, keep your hands up so that the. Yeah. One, two, three, four. Yeah, thank you. I am Mark Hanuel. I'm uh, from University of Illinois at Chicago. And I'm super happy that I'm coming after Simon's uh, question because um, it connects with Simon's in that I was wondering one of the crucial things that a lot of us probably in this room think about is not just advocacy for the humanities, but how that connects with um, advocacy for um, education in general and the benefits of a research institution, um, which is inseparable from the history of defunding 
um, uh, especially public institutions. And so I'm just kind of wondering how we should all be thinking about um, the advocacy for the humanities as this problem of the material funding of institutions, which has you know, had a long history of gradual chipping away over time, um, and how it is that we as a body together can think through um, this problem of defunding and the bigger project of making education free, the, the making of a research institution free for all. Um, and that is another way of saying how can this um, body think of engaged humanities not as something that happens only outside the university but happens within the university itself and becoming advocates for free education. I thought it was another hand up in this corner. Yes, let's finish this corner and then we go over here where you were first and then David and then I think I'll stop at, the, at this point. The mic should go to this gentleman here. He was first and then come back. I'll come back to you. Yes. yes. <laughs> Yes, thank you, John Christman, uh, Penn State Humanities uh, Institute. Um, I uh, appreciated the way in which a couple of panelists uh, insisted on showing or trying to emphasize the way humanities concerns were already uh, in inherent in uh, the concerns of uh, policymakers and other things. But, um, but I wonder, uh, I really have two points. One is um, the language of advocacy um, carries with it a model of speaking to and pronouncing and uh, making claims uh, for this value, which is being done eloquently here. But I wonder if a, a, a possible alternative model is uh, conversation and engagement, where uh, more listening to and particularly uh, being sensitive to the language that is being used by people who are um, outside of the academy and the way in which uh, uh, more sensitive ears to the problems that they um, define for themselves could be uh, could be emphasized. But the other thing I wanted to talk about to to mention and ask your response to is one of the things that is uh, the most pronounced manifestation of the challenges we're facing is the decrease in uh, the long term decrease in interest in humanities majors at universities. This is especially uh, true in, the, in North America, but in Europe as well. Um, I. I, was, I wonder how the very interesting points everyone was making could bring us back to that, whether the um, engagement, conversation, advocacy has to be thought of to include younger people, not just policymakers and not just uh, corporate leaders and others, but actual um, uh, people like your daughter um, who, and other ways to get, um, to get not only college uh, age people, but even younger people uh, interested in history and the languages and philosophy and also know that that would be uh, positive as a life-defining uh, choice as well as a career choice. Can the panel take more or are you on the verge of a nervous breakdown already? Uh, can I take the last two? Is that okay? So we go to this corner and then reply and then we start again. Yeah, thanks to the organizers for this panel, very timely and important. So this question is about what constitutes the humanities within the context of advocating for the humanities. And I, I say that uh, with this context that uh, what we've seen in the past few decades is the creation of new disciplines that are very interdisciplinary. Uh, think of African American studies, indigenous studies, women, gender, sexuality studies, 
that often include scholars who are in social sciences, who have training in psychology and sociology and anthropology, and also scholars who are in studies of literature and history, etc. Uh, what we've done at Virginia Tech, I'm, I'm Sylvester Johnson from Virginia Tech, by the way, forgot to introduce myself, but what we've done is to define the humanities as inclusive of liberal arts, social sciences, of the creative arts, uh, with a broad understanding of humanistic, human-centered scholarship that even connects to some of the work that's happening in STEM. But I'm curious about your insights into this within the context of advocacy. How, what have you found to be effective and important in explaining what the humanities actually is? And the last one, David, thank you. Uh, so I have two points. The first is that it seems to me that the word... Introduce yourself, please. Oh, I'm sorry, David Shumway, uh, Carnegie Mellon University. Um, two points. The first is that the word intrinsic is, a, is an unfortunate mystification that in my discipline comes down to us from the new critics. Um, literature, history, philosophy have value, period. It's not intrinsic, it's widely recognized, and it's what we need to insist on. Secondly, um, this is was just suggested, I think, by several other people, but I want to put it this way. We need to advocate not just with legislators or bureaucrats, but with the general public. It's ultimately the voters in democracy who need to be persuaded of the value of the humanities in education and research. Thanks. Thank you. Could the microphones go back to Central Command? Uh, dear panel, be uh, autopoietic and self-organized. Don't feel that just because you haven't been interpolated personally that you don't have the right to answer. Everybody can jump in on everything. However, for the sake of order, we shall be linear and start from Andrew. Who's still writing is my mom. Well, I won't try and pick up on all of those questions, but let me just briefly touch on three. I mean, I think the point about um, multidisciplinary work is well made. There is um, a danger of sort of navel gazing here if we're not careful. I point out that, I mean, if we look at uh, what we fund in the Arts and Humanities Research Council, the um, boundary, if boundary is the right word for it, between the humanities and social sciences has long been extremely porous for reasons that you were suggesting. But we fund a lot of work in environmental humanities health humanities and digital humanities. If you were add, to add all of that up, I don't know what percentage of our budget it would be, but it would be quite a big percentage. So the interface with STEM subjects is very important here. And I should say that you know, when I, in my job, have encountered what I call sort of STEM reductionism and technological determinism, it's rarely been from my counterparts in the, the Science Research Councils. It's actually been from within governments. Yeah? They realize that increasingly we're going to need to come to the, the party. I would say, though, on that subject, that you know, the foundation for strong multidisciplinary research is strong disciplines. So if you're the head of a research council, you've got a real responsibility to make sure you know, the future health of disciplines is, is there as well. I think the point about advocacy was really well made, and if I can sort of paraphrase it, it's not just about advocacy, it's about testimony. It's one thing us saying it for ourselves, but there's a huge value when the value of what we do is expressed by others. And I mean a whole range and variety of others there as well. And it's important if you're 
uh, if you're a head of a research council, that you are um, able to be constructively self-critical about your own research community. And, because you can't be effective otherwise, and some of the science research councils are better at getting uh, that testimony uh, than, than we've been. But there is no reason that we shouldn't be able to provide the best we do. And then finally, just to pick up on the intrinsic instrumental that, that Simon mentioned about someone else. I actually think, Simon, that the problem is that we, ex we accept the, you know, the distinction between the intrinsic and the instrumental. I don't think it's a, a very helpful um, distinction, and I wouldn't fight by just trying to say this is an intrinsic sort of argument. Um, I think you know, it's, it, we need to realize that science subjects have the problem with defending what they call discovery science or pure research just as much as we do. This is not an exception to the humanities. But the whole point about saying that the um, quintessential can be consequential is that you don't know. We don't know when the quintessential is going to become consequential. It's an argument both for the intrinsic and the instrumental at the same time. And when I spoke to the deputy director of the British Museum about the piece of research that we funded and um, uh, that produced the Hokusai exhibition that I was mentioning, and I said, well, what, what was so special about that piece of research? And he said, Andrew, it's because what that piece of research did is it enabled the British Museum to be, be the museum at its best. And the museum at its best when we take people to places they haven't recognized they wanted to go. That is the quintessential, which can, at times, and you never always know when you fund, may become consequential as well. And that's why you have to have both together. So we continue in order. Are you happy to do that? Sure, yeah, I can pick up on just on a few of those points. I think that I think there are ways of finding common cause with the sciences here, particularly in the emphasis on Blue Skies research, but you were seeking a definition for that. And I think the available ones are really in terms of curiosity-driven research. And I think that's something, the notion of curiosity is, is, is compelling. I think people can respond to that. And I think creativity is also available to us as a term to think about the, the, the creative power of the imagination. But these are things that have transformative effects. And I think people without necessarily knowing precisely what those outcomes are can respond to those concepts. Um, there was a question about the drift of students and their uh, enrollment patterns, which is obviously a concern. I think it's particularly acute in the US, as you were saying, uh, but it's an issue in a lot of different places. And we are facing a kind of public agenda, uh, certainly through politicians, and ideological support for, uh, strong ideological and financial support for investment in other areas. We see this kind of movement also by students towards politics and geography. And I think that's part of the sense that those are engaged in the world. They're doing things that matter. They're engaging with climate change, with the issues that are crucial. And that's really an invitation to people in all the humanities disciplines to, to, to establish their relevance and their importance, that they speak to these issues and they speak to them powerfully. Um, I think one way to address that, I mean, in Ireland, we have a, a, a very well-funded science week. Um, and I think that there should be an arts week in Ireland. Uh, we should have students uh, at all ages coming to the campuses, at school age that is, and, and, and experiencing that excitement and that sense of occasion, which is, which is magnificently conferred in, in, in the Science Week. In terms of our public advocacy, again, to think particularly in an Irish context, I mean, the transformative events associated with um, the repeal of the Eighth Amendment, of marriage equality, these are the changed social narratives have had a, a major effect on these powerful political events. 
So I think we can remind people of something that they probably, at some level, already know. Sure. Thank you so much for all of that. That's it's it's, it's incredible food for thought, and it's a, a great privilege to have the, the chance to actually respond to these these comments. Um, thinking about, I think there is a reason why we have a tendency to focus on um, what the, the speaker called the, the sort of these instrumental arguments. And to my mind, I remember when I first came to Trinity, having a, a fairly prominent person in the uh, institution tell me um, that uh, it was very you know when you were fundraising for the arts and humanities you didn't talk about any kind of social value or applicability. You know, that wasn't really attractive to people who might actually support arts and humanities you know, with, with their checkbooks. So I thought it was really interesting because it reminded me, as uh, uh, trained as a scholar of 19th century German literature, of the whole idea of the shopkeeper soul keeper. You know, there was this kind of messy stuff out there, but we needed the, the pure uh, stuff as well. And, and I think that's why a lot of us have kind of said, well, you know, in every field of research, and I absolutely agree, the sciences face this as well. You know, I'll, Mathematics is always kind of saying, well, you know, we, we, we power physics, you know, we power experimental physics, but it's hard for us to make the argument for our, our discipline on our own. I've heard this many times. But I think the difference for the arts and humanities is the discourse about the applied dimension, the discourse about the translational capacity in these disciplines is somewhat newer. How we actually train our students to think of themselves as both experts for whom there is a, a core of knowledge that may be only accessible to other experts, but also whose research is very, very relevant to social questions. And that's the balance that we need perhaps to, 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 to reflect more. So I think that there's a corrective there. And, and certainly, you know, I, I, I love work like uh, Boyer's Scholarship Reconsidered, where he says, well, you know, the, there's almost a fetishization of this sort of discovery science, and we need more about the integration, the application, teaching, you know, all of these forms of scholarship. So I think that that's how I would see this. That's not that it's this now, not that, but both and, because you need one to power the other. Um, I also think this, this sort of, uh, there's an interesting question that was sort of being asked around exactly what we mean by the arts and humanities, and it was asked directly, but also this whole idea of conversation and engagement. And as somebody who works with people from a lot of disciplines, one of the things that I find I do very differently is um, the, the attitude towards the sources, the attitude towards the material that comes in, and the attitude toward, towards what we put out. You know, science and technology studies tells us that science is created, science is malleable, science is, 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 is as all too human as everything else we do, um, and yet you'll find a lot of people in science and engineering who really resist that. I think it's actually something we embrace and something we see as part of that conversational element, so I think that that's actually a very interesting point as well. Um, and then the, the third thing is this question about how do we make it safe for students? How do we make it so that students will be attracted to the arts and humanities and how they will feel empowered to, um, to, to pursue them? And in some ways, I think this is, you know, we see this in Ireland, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, a bonus on your leaving search tests if you take higher maths. You know, there is all of the kind of policy about wanting more computer scientists. We hear these messages again and again. They get ingrained. It's viewed as unsafe. I think in some places to take arts and humanities. And yet, if you look at the literature coming out of Silicon Valley, the skills they're looking for are humanities skills. So again, I think there's another advocacy piece there about understanding, well, okay, if we're no longer in that elitist model where you kind of, you know, you come and you study and you do these things and you become a leader and then you go out and you lead, um, then how is it that we can actually make, um, make that, that, that phase between the, the object of study, because we don't go out and we become, you know, we don't go out and become, well, unless we become literature scholars, we don't take our literature degree and go do literature generally, we do something else with it. 
So how can you make that translation easier and more clear? And I think that that would um, go a long way. So uh, this uh, technique of taking seven questions and answering them one uh, is terrific. It, it allows us to be uh, completely reductive and narcissistic as we bludgeon your questions into what we wanted to say anyway. So I hope we will continue these dialogues and you will have a chance to correct what we've done to your questions. But here's what I think. From your hints, uh, questions. So first, I, I think the question of engagement does sort of flow through many of these questions, and I think different forms of engagement. Uh, I would say uh, I, I'm going to start with the question of in instrumentality versus pure, and I think I, I'm a big believer that these must be reconciled. They must be reconciled because our, our the people with whom we have to engage are not just bureaucrats and lawmakers, but mostly, at least in the states, families and students. And so the, they want both. Um, and I think what, what bothers me, and this is a pet peeve, but what bothers me about the digital, which I, I'm a big believer in, is when the digital within the humanities is reduced to pure instrumentality. And for example, I heard one great talk, one emphatic talk that said, uh, this digital humanities project that we have in the classics is great because our undergraduates are involved in it, so when they go looking for a job, they can say that they write PHP code. And that to me is not humanities, that's saying I have a minor in some applied skill. So I think that to me that's not the best way to merge these, but I think they can be merged and they often are. Um, I would say uh, to the question of uh, with whom do the humanities uh, advocate or engage together, uh, I think that you're being on a panel on, a, on, a, on European research networks and being there and in that conversation is so important because other people will advocate for their own uh, agenda. And I think this happens, uh, I see this happen all the time, not only as you were saying about the social sciences, you know, and sort of can't we work on this together, particularly in area studies, but it happens with the arts. I, I've been in discussions with humanists where they say, well, you know, the arts, they get a lot of attention. A lot of people like the arts. The arts are considered magical, you know, because they're creative. And you know, we're creative too. I don't think that we want to make divisions uh, where, where the arts are over there because they're pure creative and they get blockbuster shows. And so I think, I think we, we, need to, um, we need to work together with a lot of people. And uh, finally, I would say that I think um, that these, uh, that that all that the ball keeps bouncing, and so the things that we care about in terms of scholarship and research, and uh, both basic research, pure research, and, and applied research, the ball in the states at least bounces back to undergraduate enrollment. And so undergraduate enrollments in in, uh, in humanities classes or majors, both in different ways, uh, does rely upon uh, those students and those families and the public seeing that the humanities uh, can be applied to the, to the challenges and to the problems out there that they care about, whether that's through what kind of research they're involved in or what kind of courses they're taking or whether subject matter is climate change or, or other things. But I think it's super important that we remember that research 
that brings students in can be very engaged. And so just one example, again, I mentioned briefly this community college fellowships. We didn't know what we were going to get, whether people were going to be writing their book on Chaucer and just not needing time for it, or whether they were going to be doing research that was particularly applied to their to their world, and you know, some of the winners for this are working on, on projects of, of, on foods insecurity with students who themselves do not have enough to eat. Or there's another project working in Elmira, New York, on what the effect of having a prison town is on that town, not just prison. So I think we all we all work on what we care about, and we remember that research and scholarship is working on all sorts of issues, and that those are of great public interest. The other panelists, anything you want to add, particularly those who started? <clears throat> no? Uh, just highlighting, we have heard about the disciplines, we have heard about interdisciplinarity, we've heard about studies, <laughs> we've heard about the new humanities, also called the post-humanities, the environmental, the digital, the medical, the public, just the terminological kind of, um, what should we call it, effervescence um, of the field. Um, that's a sign of great vitality. Whether that solves uh, or creates problems, I do not know, but I'm throwing this uh, back at you. Uh, there's already some new registration. Let me show your hands if you want to come in. And the people who asked the first wave of questions, do feel free to come back with some sort of right of reply if you felt a bit short-changed. We start with Amanda over here, and then at the center here. Show your hands. Welcome. Introduce yourself. Yes, um, Amanda Anderson, uh, director of the Kogut Institute for the Humanities at Brown University. Um, I have basically just two comments. I want to thank the panelists um, for some a really provocative set of remarks. Um, this follows a little bit on something James just said, my first comment, and it has to do with engagement within the university across divisions which I think there's a real opportunity at the present time, especially given the centrality in many universities of strategic plans that promote integrative scholarship on societal and global challenges. Um, I think it, there's an opportunity for, for folks in the humanities, and particularly for, for humanities centers and institutes, to initiate partnerships and collaborations across divisions on these very uh, themes, and if you wait around for the other divisions to initiate, they will not. However, there are lots of people in the sciences and social sciences who respond with great interest at the prospect of particularly team teaching on integrative themes, which also answers to the undergraduate demand of, you know, of higher education and of donors who like to give money to undergraduate ventures. Um, so I would just sort of stress the importance of that, that engagement within the university across divisions is important, and that the humanities should take the lead on that, which is another way of simply tacitly asserting the importance of the humanities, not, you know, by initiating programs that involve collaboration without saying anything other than here's an opportunity. Um, and an, an urgent opportunity. My second comment has to do, I realize the Speech Act situation here is to talk about advocacy and to, as a, as a um, sector of the university, to lead the examined life. So I realize that you're engaging in reflections on advocacy. But one thing, and this kind of recurs to Rosie's opening remarks about, at, about the problem of constantly defending and to, um, 
Andrew's remarks about tone, a topic which uh, Stefan Collini has been quite eloquent about for some time. Um, and that is, it seems to me really important to always at least also exemplify the humanities at the moment of advocacy. And, and, and I, you know, so for example, um, examples are really important. And my sense is that the examples today have been rather telegraphic. So I love this statement that quintessential can be consequential, but I honestly don't feel like I heard a vivid example. I heard a descriptive, somewhat distanced um, example about the exhibition, but I still don't know exactly why it was so profound. And that may not be necessary here because of you know where we stand and who we are and this particular speech act situation, but I do think it's very important that every moment of advocacy include exemplification so that we're not always justifying and defending. Thank you. I'll, cont I'll continue down the side to Jane, then we come to the center and a few and then yeah, well, you don't need to introduce yourself. <laughs> For those of you who don't know me, though, my name is Jane Olmeyer, and I'm organizing uh, this event. Uh, but actually, I'm going to put my chair of the Irish Research Council hat on for a minute, Rosie, and maybe take you to task a little bit. The national funders, obviously, are hugely important. And I would push back to the research community and say where we failed and I say this as chair of the Irish Research Council, is as a community to lobby government effectively about the fundamental importance of basic discovery, uh, uh, curiosity-driven research. I don't think we should blame the councils for that. I think we should blame ourselves to an extent. We, can, we, you know, we have a voice, we have a vote, we need to be far more proactive, and part of that is telling our story. So I just wanted to say that. Um, the other thing I'd like to say just very quickly, and this is putting on my Trinity Long Room Hub ad, is that we're currently leading a initiative on how you put the arts and humanities at the center of multi-inter and transdisciplinary conversations. And it's all about the arts and humanities being the leaders of the big missions or of the grand societal challenges and how we can shift the, uh, turn up the dial in terms of the rhetoric. This is reporting directly to the European Commission. We very much hope it's going to be uh, uh, influencing Horizon Europe, which is the next call. We would love to have more conversations with colleagues in the room about how we as a community can really come together to shape the dialogue at the European level and at the national level. Well spoken, thank you. In the middle here, first, and then Steve. I think she's coming from this side, so don't splash. Thank you. Uh, Bill Sterner, University of Chicago, Computer Science and Conceptual Historical Studies of Science. I'd like to suggest as a comment uh, a reframing of some of the issues around language. Uh, I think we've really moved into a time where it's time for humanities, humanists, to recognize that computer-generated language is a voice that's speaking It's primarily an imitative voice. It doesn't have the significance and the meaning underneath it that natural language does, but it's intrinsic and we will be speaking, especially with the younger generations, about 
how this voice has inter into, entered into their lives and helped shape them. Thank you. And then the last for this slot. Introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Steve Connor. I'm the director of Crash in Cambridge. Um, and I wanted to make a comment um, about, uh, not so much about um, methods and necessities of advocacy, as about the possible consequences of the advocacy posture in relation to the humanities. And I wonder whether one of the things this might do is to tribalize us, to squeeze us into a rather factitious kind of solidarity as the humanities. For as long as I've had anything to do with the humanities, um, it's, uh, there have been areas of the humanities that seem to me to be almost unrecognizable, not anything I want anything to do with, and I know that other people think of my work in just the same kind of way. Um, so I'm just wondering whether anyone else feels squeezy about the kind of pressure to get with the program that the advocacy posture might bring with it. Thank you, provocative as usual, very welcome. Shall we make this the very last one? <clears throat> Just right next to you. Thank you. Thanks, this, thanks. this sort of builds directly on that prior comment. Uh, my name is Andy Perrin, I'm the um, incoming new director of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, Something that Teresa Mangum said this morning struck me as important to this uh, conversation as well, and it jived with my experience on interdisciplinary research teams, that um, there's a, an important difference in, in intellectual style between scientific and humanistic approaches to the world. That's, these are not simply easily commensurable. And the scientific uh, impulse toward reduction is really a clash with the humanistic impulse toward the recognition and preservation of complexity. Um, the, the advocacy position strikes me as a claim to causality. Uh, the the humanistic, uh, humanistic work causes something that is of value that ought therefore to be supported. And that causal story uh, carries with it, I think, the danger of that, um, of that shift into reductionism. So I, I offer this more as a problem than as a solution, but I, I wonder whether in fact this concern about um, the, the pure as opposed to the applied actually is, uh, is absolutely uh, essential to the problem and not, not actually soluble in an easy way. At this point, I'll ask the panel to go on a volunteer basis. Who wants to start? And I see that uh, you're ready to go. Yeah, just a few things. I'm not entirely sure I, I would accept that characterization of the sciences. Um, I mean, I think a difference is method, a difference of what constitutes evidence, but I think there are some pretty powerful connections and there's a lot of scientific research which is, which is led clearly by, by curiosity where there's no end in sight. If you take, for example, geology is highly interpretive scientific exercise. So these things are not cut and dried and, and I think we could, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't accept the reductionist um, depiction personally that you were giving. Maybe it takes us back to Stephen's point about um, the questions of tribalizing and so forth. Um, I come back to Jane's comment. I mean, I think that there are moments in which as a community we have to speak with one voice and we're much more effective if we do that, and if we're willing for certain purposes and certain contexts to make that commitment, and I think the sciences are very effective in doing it, and Lord knows they've got plenty of differences amongst themselves. So it's not as if they magically make their differences appear. They recognize the occasion and the importance of advocacy in certain, certain settings. I think what we have to work on is an evidence base. 
Now, there are certain difficulties that we face in terms of metrics and a variety of other things where the available methodologies are not tremendously well suited to what we're doing. I think we could probably do a little bit more work in relation to the question, question of skills. And it doesn't quite speak to your point about languages, which is really rather startling and an invitation. But I do think that the skills agenda, which is something that exists in Ireland and elsewhere in European governments and so forth, we need to find a way into that. And languages is clearly one of them. And a much richer understanding of communication as the goal of language rather than some, some, some transactional understanding of it. So I think we could probably do do more work in that context uh, uh, to be more effective. Yes, Jen. Yeah, make sure you're speaking to the mics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just want to actually come back on that because I, 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 I'm struck by this point as well, and I think I would agree with, with, with Dan on this, that, that um, there is a, a place to be, to recognize our diversity, and there is a place to speak with one voice. And an interesting anecdote going back some ways, and apologies for anyone who doesn't find European research infrastructure policy fascinating, I will try and make this interesting. Um, back in 2006, Europe decided they were going to consolidate research infrastructure. And this was a real, almost a scary moment for us because it's sort of like, okay, this is the point where we drop off the landscape entirely. And those of you who know the, um, the what's going on in Australia, I don't know if there's anyone here from Australia, um, yeah, the, the, the kind of the infrastructural developments for arts and humanities there that now the Australian Academy is responding to, um, I think, um, have, have kind of shown us what that, what that response might have looked like. But anyway, so when Europe decided to consolidate in 2006, they put two things on something called the roadmap that were somewhat similar. One was DARIA, the organization I am involved with, which was for the digital arts and humanities, although we would now say we are for the arts and humanities in a digital age, because digitality is a part of all our workflows. The other one was something called the European Research Observatory for the Humanities. And DARIA is flourishing. I mean, it's growing. It's, it's, it's strong. It's recognized. Eros, the other um, organization, actually never launched. And I think part of the reason on backward-looking reflection why Daria has managed to not only build and become strong over the, the 10 years since then, um, but also to actually take on this interesting policy role, is specifically because we focus on that shared layer of the digital. And that, for me, might mean that I need you know, tools to, to parse language. But for others, it might mean they need to understand what the fact that we now publish in digital environments means. What does it mean to have open access? Because that's all harnessing the digital. So for different scholars, it means different things. But it is something that highlights our similarities and not our differences. And I think from a European Commission perspective, the fact that they can look to Daria and say, OK, this is a body that represents this very diverse, um, they might say fragmented, they might say capricious set of disciplines, we would say that that's a strength and that we can provide a kind of a connecting layer. But the fact that we have this red thread makes us more powerful. And I think it's an interesting example of how overcoming that queasiness, perhaps, and focusing on the things that bring us together can make us more powerful. Yes, I, I wanted to come um, to the two, I think, very perceptive and pertinent comments from a colleague from Brown University, so we don't lose sight of those. Both, both of them uh, very much resonate. The first one was the urgent opportunity, and I think those words are well chosen, for us to participate more in cross-university programs. And I would say that absolutely mirrors my experience of cross-research council programs and 
I have responsibility for a £1.5 billion fund for research for international development. And I, I'd be interested to hear your views. I think there is a, there is a real issue of under-representation there. And it's not clear to me whether it's because we're not invited or whether we don't put ourselves forward. It's probably a combination of the two. I think we need to invite ourselves. And I think that sometimes we need to take more responsibility for putting ourselves forward. Because there, you know, in the cross-council programs, there's no doubt that uh, they're disproportionately led by STEM colleagues. But I don't think that has to be the case. But the other comment, which I will take away, and uh, I think these words will lodge in my, my head, is exemplify through advocacy. I think that's a really powerful point. I think we, we have to be able to unpick and explain those examples. And I've had three criteria for picking the hockey side, and we have quite a lot of equivalents just to reassure you of the hockey side. One is that they have to stand up to scrutiny. I mean, politicians may be many things, but they're, they're really stupid. And, you know, so the, 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 argument, the argument has to have, yeah, credibility. Because it will be tested if you're doing the jobs that, you know, I do in the middle of a spending review, yeah. The counter questions have come back and someone will play devil's advocate. The second, and just as importantly, is your examples have to represent the range of what you do. It's really important. The arts and humanities in the UK account, well, I, I would ask if we had time, what percentage of research active academics do you, in the UK would you think sat in the arts and humanities? The figure I think will surprise some people in the room is 31.5% of research active academics sit in one of the seven councils with under 4% of the UK science budget. So they have to speak to the range of examples. But I also believe very passionately the examples have to speak to, the, to our values as well. So that is a beautiful phrase, exemplifying through advocacy. One of the problems, if I may, with examples is that sometimes in overly focusing on the impact, we're actually not very clear about the research and what work the research is doing. So I think that it's really important in Hokusai to be able to explain that that piece of research, which was curiosity-driven research, resulted in a broader representation of his unknown as well as known works. For the first exhibition, I think, in living memory that took account of the full chronological range of his career, and that in terms of certain key works, did a certain rethinking and re reinterpretation of those works. And if you can't do that, you can't actually explain, all you're telling a uh, politician is that there was a, you know, an interesting or successful Hokusai exhibition, you're not telling them what difference the research made. So I'll, I'll try to connect two of the questions. Um, so to your question of, you know, within the humanities and the broad tent of the humanities, the, the various roles of various disciplines and whether you uh, could, can sort of cheer them on as, as uh, all working on the same common cause and the sort of reduction inherent in that. I mean, I think, I think we all have to recognize that we we all have different roles to play in this. And, and some people are really good at compromise, and some people really aren't. And, and, and that's good, that's okay. I think that there are people who advocate for their field or their theory within their field um, and, and, and do it beautifully, and that's a marvelous part of, of, of what we all do. And then I think there's some of us I should include myself, but I aspire to be included, and I think people 
running humanity centers often are this way, who can um, can bring things together and um, and in effect be somewhat more reductive. And I think there's a there's a positive strain of uh, reductionism. Uh, there are a lot of negative strains, but I think the ability to tell that linear and reductive advocacy story on behalf of the humanities uh, is certainly needed in some ways. And I think your point about the sciences and the sciences having, you know, sort of said, a, uh, told a reductive story, narrative uh, successfully versus, a, you know, the complexity of a, of a humanity story. Uh, you know, there is lots of good science that appreciates complexity. But I think they have done very well at, at, uh, at making uh, a reductive, uh, sort of uh, responsive to the funding sources kind of story. I mean, genetics was, you know, 15 years ago, genetics was going to, you know, cure the common cold in 15 minutes, and funding, funding went to a lot of geneticists. Then it became proteomics, and proteomics was going to fix what genetics. So, so there, so I think they're, they're. You know, there's, there, I think there's too much reductionism in science, but I think there are things for us to learn about how we make our case there. The rest of the panel, anything you want to add at this particular point? No. Back at your time, is almost running out. We're almost running out of breath and energy. We've also let go a little bit of the context and in response to Jane, to Jane and uh, the, the context of uh, populism and the illiberal attacks on, on the university in general and the humanities in particular, we have to let go of it because it's depressing, but not completely. <laughs> and, and, and it's true that the National Research Councils and the institutions sometimes try their best against the political class that is inventing something called the crisis of the humanities. I just throw it in there to depress you. We have one question right there. And looking around for the last round, one here, two, at, at the back also? Yeah, two. Yeah. Oh, sorry. The light's right in my eyes. Okay, we make this the three. Okay. So I'm Teresa Manga from the University of Iowa, and with thanks, I still would like to just quickly clarify before all my science colleagues close their labs to me, that my point was actually about differences in style and in temporalities that, that impact collaborations with scientists. Not to say they are in any way simple-minded. Uh, so we're back there. But my point is actually, my question, I guess, is that one of the things I've been thinking a lot as I listen to the conversation today is of what we're kind of, in the interest of time, collapsing together as what we're advocating for under the sign of the humanities. And it does seem to me that what we're mostly talking about today is advocating for humanities research. Because there are, uh, there also is, you know, student, there's education, the work we do with students, public humanities, and there are various forms of the humanities that we would advocate for differently and more easily, and that I think sometimes can be a stair step toward advocating for more difficult and complex ideas that, that we um, tackle as research. So I just think those distinctions are very important in advocacy work. We take this, we take this one here while we relocate the mic in the back. Yeah, yeah, uh, my name is Andriy Shabrinok. I am the director of the School of Advanced Studies University of Tumen, which is in Siberia, which is a pretty brand new institution. Uh, I was wondering about the kind of conflicting messages that we might be sending to the outside world when we advocate for the humanities. Because I think the danger of actually phrasing that, well, we actually help solve global issues, like global 
warming uh, in the humanities actually discourages students or donors who are not interested in changing the world through humanities uh, from engaging with us. Right? Imagine a student who thinks, well, uh, I want to fight global warming. I would better become a climatologist, right? And if you say, well, there is a history department that says, well, also says that, oh, this is our mission to fight the global warming, then we'll say, well, but it's probably not as efficient as being a climatologist, and I would be a climatologist. Somebody who thinks, well, I maybe want to study French Revolution for the sake of studying French Revolution, when they discover that, well, they, it's also all done to fight, to fight some global issues, they will actually not go there. So I, uh, maybe I'm, I'm Bit, bit kind of not quite clear, but my concern is that there is a demand in the society for disinterested knowledge. And traditionally, humanities was part of that, right? I, back in like the 1990s, I went to study Russian literature precisely because I didn't want to do anything with the world, right? I wanted to study <laughs> Russian literature and not to solve the, you know, uh, problems of uh, post-Soviet Russia. And that's why I chose if literature, and the literature department then told me, yes, you are studying pure art because you think it's valuable. That's why you do and read, you know, 19th century Russian literature. If I was told they would, well, you know, you do that in order to solve some issues, well, I would either not go there or I would go to the sociology department because that's probably closer. Slightly contradictory but highly provocative, I'm sure people <laughs> at the back. <laughs> Introduce yourself. I'm Homi Baba. I teach uh, English at Harvard. Um, I think the many of the issues that are being talked about today are about the ways in which we can use the humanities to make um, to, or we can use the humanities to create an intervention in various other issues, whether it's social justice or whether it's social sciences or uh, uh, or, or more contemporary issues of climate. So, seems to me that there is a problem which is deep-seated in the pedagogy of the humanities. And that is, we are very good at creating scholars, you know, the quintessential, and we're very good in certain contexts of talking about the consequences of that quintessential. But there is something that mediates it which is to be an intellectual is different from just being a scholar or from being able to apply scholarship to a specific problematic area in the world. I don't know that I have a solution to this or an, even a very uh, convincing definition, but there is something about the educational system which, if it is going to have a role of advocacy, whether it's for the humanities or for the sciences, has to have the wider world view of an interventionist intellectual platform, not simply of an academic platform. I think there is a distinction between the two things. Of course, academics can be intellectuals when they write for the New York Review of Books or the London Review of Books, you know, they put on that hat. But I think it should be part of the way in which we teach that the question is not simply about the relevance of one's work to the wider social world, but how you position yourself within your own discipline. And my view is that much interdisciplinary work, as we call it, 
has to highlight the intellectual values or the intellectual effects or indeed the intellectual rhetoric. Uh, to learn how to speak as an intellectual and write as an intellectual is different from learning how to speak as an academic, as, as, a, as a scholar. It's related to it. it. It puts you in a very different place and it actually creates for me the real center of what advocacy might be. Advocacy is not only giving yourself a great narrative, it is to understand what it means to be an intellectual uh, in relation to being a scholar or in addition to being a scholar. Thank you. Thank you. I'll have to stop there in view of time unless somebody is on the verge of explosion if they don't ask a question. Dear panelists, again, shall I go on, uh, on a volunteer basis? Is Jennifer leaping? Is that? Sure. She's leaping. Leap. Speak into the mic, please. Don't speak too fast. Okay. <laughs> Apparently, um, my, my, my own personal advocacy position is just to speak really fast and no one will ever contradict me. <laughs> I had coffee. I apologize. I shouldn't have had coffee before this. Um, I find your last point um, about this almost kind of the personal stance that we take towards our work. And I think that that, that is a lot of what we're hearing here. And I, I would tie that into what our colleague from, from Russia has said. Um, I often think that there, 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 are, there are problems in the world that need to be fixed, and these are problems that we face perhaps not as much as professionals as we do as human beings, as individuals, as citizens. Um, and if you have a problem, if you have a house that needs to be fixed, you don't throw away all the tools in your toolbox just because you know best how to use a hammer. And so to me, the whole idea that, um, you know, the, the, the deep study of Russian literature Yes, you want to focus on it, but it does give you a perspective on the world and it does give you insight. And I think actually surfacing that kind of insight and how that insight is useful um, is, is one of the key things to us. And it reminds me of two things, two very quick anecdotes. First of all, um, we one time had a, um, uh, a senior member of a consultancy firm come and say, oh, I want to talk to your PhD students. I thought, oh, this would be interesting. And every PhD student around the, the, the table was very amused that this very senior consultant consultancy firm guys with you know the flashy the flashy watch and the flashy suit wanted to talk to them. And what was interesting is every one of those students said, well, you know, my work is really, really kind of out there. I work on, you know, language change in Baudelaire. And he said, that's really interesting because actually now that we're using all this text speak and things like that, we really need to understand language change. And another said, oh well, I'm looking at the beauty myth and you know 19th century Victorian literature. And he said, oh well, that's really interesting because I'm working with a cosmetic company. And those students walked out of there a foot higher, a foot taller than they had walked in because suddenly they had seen them and they helped them have that personal sense. And I think part of that is coming back to the way we see ourselves and the way we see our students and the way we see education. And the second thing I think of is a computer scientist who had studied as an undergraduate uh, arts and humanities. And he said, yeah, the, the, the model of studying and of work in the arts and humanities seemed to be you wander in the woods with your sensei. And sometimes he's there and sometimes he's not. And you find your way out some way or other. And he said, and then I came to computer science and it was like running with the wild horses. How can we make this study of our humanities more like that, that kind of, um, that momentum? And I always kind of wonder as to, to what the benefits of each one are and how we might harness them both together. Thank you. So I'd like to try and connect the, um, comments made about Russian literature with, with Homie's comment. Um, and I have two things to say. One is supremely prosaic and the other one perhaps a little bit more principled. Um, the reality is if you're the head of the research council, you just don't need to ever defend 100% of what you fund. 
if it's not the world you live in, you defend the 20%, yeah, and to look after the 80%. It's those sorts of, so um, I, I think there's lots of things that we support as the, as, uh, the AHRC, which are absolutely sort of curiosity-driven, basic, fundamental, discovery-led research. We don't expect to create an impact narrative um, uh, about them. We've supported them because they are excellent research. And I absolutely agree. It's why my last comment in my opening remarks with the danger of the humanities and sciences structurally overcharging themselves around the impact narrative, promising things that we can deliver that either we can't or other you know, research commu uh, disciplinary communities might. Um, just as a rider to your comment, though, we, we funded a great project on really important project actually, on uh, a region of Zimbabwe that over decades has historically suffered from drought. And this actually paired um, communities in the uh, environmental science doing hydrological modeling. We've been working with that, those communities in Zimbabwe for many years and just not getting any purchase or penetration. And it was actually bringing the humanities in who understand the languages, the history, the culture. Um, of the region that had made the difference. But to come back, I mean, Homie's sort of really posed one of the biggest questions of all, which is in sort of wrapping up, which is how do you or do we position ourselves within our own discipline? And I might add, Homie, also, how do we position ourselves in relation to the societies in which we live? That's a hard question at this hour of the day to get a grip on. But I would just say two things in, in trying to get a grip on it. To remind you and myself of something that we both know very well, that a generation of extremely distinguished humanities scholars and, and, and distinguished historians in my discipline fought very bravely and courageously against the apartheid regime in South Africa. And their very scholarship was a political act. Writing black history in the middle of apartheid was a political act, but it was also some of the best history that was being written at that time. Equally, if I look at what we in the Arts and Humanities Research Council have been funding over the last few years, there is no doubt that we've seen an increase, it may be an exponential increase, in research tackling refugee crises, forced displacement, and modern slavery. We haven't asked for that research. It's not been strategic or directed programs. It's all come from the so-called bottom-up and curiosity-driven research. And it raises a very profound question that I'm not going to try to answer, but I'm going to just make an observation, which is I think that in our own times, we are seeing a sort of rebirth and recrudescence of what one might call activist scholarship. And this is scholarship that's critically informed and evidence-based but it's also scholarship that's engaged and passionate about what it's doing. And I think somewhere in that space is an answer to how we position ourselves in relation to our own disciplines and the societies in which we work. Thank you. Thank you. Are we doing next, Stephanie? Uh, I think it would be difficult to improve on that. Uh, really, I can only you know, try to compliment it and uh, support it. I think to speak to your point, I mean, just said that there at the end, that universities are spaces of ideas. I think that we should avoid scripting outcomes of arguments and debates, uh, that we create spaces of debate, 
and of conversation and of interrogation. And that, these are fundamentally values of the humanities, and I think those, those are the ones that we should defend. So uh, I, I would see something of great constancy uh, uh, with these three questions. I, mean, I think that the uh, summation of uh, the intellectual approach and the approach of an intellectual uh, to material is at the heart of all this. It's at the heart of the teaching, as you say. When you're teaching undergraduates, it's not about, may or may not be about research or scholarship, but it's about awakening the intellectual curiosity. Your, your question about so the, sort of the, the um, non-instrumental approach to an intellectual pursuit is also about the intellectual pursuit, right? And, it's, and whether one then takes that and applies it further or not depends on where one's context changes in life. I think, uh, you know, I'd like to go back to your question earlier because we ignored it, which was you said uh, the humanities are sort of part of a bigger uh, anti-academic or anti-educational enterprise. Thank you. And, um, and I, and I, uh, uh, that just means that I forgot someone else, so, so. Um, and I'm just struck by, uh, I remember, which I will mangle to some degree, but a, a Bar Jamadi quote where he said, at, at the heart of any great university is the liberal arts, and at the heart of the liberal arts is the humanities. So I think, I think that this intellectual, uh, your, your, your very fine statement about, uh, about intellectualism versus scholarship is, I think, at the heart of what we're talking about here. Well, we could really go on for six months, but I know what my boss is going to say over there in the sake of, of time. We started with advocacies, with defenses and attacks. Um, we've covered a, a range of other uh, figurations what it is that we do. Uh, the question of testimony came up, uh, bearing witness and uh, supporting, um, the question of exemplifying practices. Um, and I was thinking to what an extent really um, exemplary lives and exemplary practices is what you do. And it is what CHCI showcases uh, so uniquely and actually bringing forth um, exemplary modes of being. I don't want to sound like Gwyneth Paltrow, but you really should feel good about yourselves. <laughs> about leading exemplary lives and leading exemplary practices. <laughs> because times are tough and we're really doing our best. Join me in thanking a brilliant part of exemplary